70s, there was a little tiny pamphlet that was passed around to some of the, the Dharma community, which was rather small at that time. And it was passed around by the American uh, guru at that time, uh, Ram Dass, who had, um, who was very, very impressed by this, um, these 10 or 12 passages that were written by the third Zen patriarch, uh, I think of China, um, a long time ago, in ancient China. And this it's said that this patriarch only, these are the only, uh, it might be that these are the only words he said, or these are the only words he ever, that were ever written down. I think it was the only words he had ever said. And, and, to, and to hear the words, which are in about 10 or 12 passages, some of you might, have, might be aware of these passages, but you would know why there wasn't anything else said, because it, they're so pithy that everything is contained in, in, in these passages. So I wanted to read you um, two of the, the short stanzas as an introduction to this talk tonight. <coughs> the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. And that's how it starts. And I'll read you the very last stanza. One thing, all things, move among and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality, because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. So that first line, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. I know when I first heard that, it was one of those things like, nah, that's not humanly possible. You know, what, what is he talking about here? Having no preferences. I mean, when I first heard this, you know, about, what, about 20 some years ago, that totally boggled my mind that the, that, the, that that would even be an aspect of these teachings because it didn't seem humanly possible. As a human being, you have preferences. So it gets your attention right away. <laughs> the great way is for those who have no preferences. And the second line is, when love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. So it's not just that hate is absent, even love is absent. Isn't that interesting? When love and hate are both absent, so what might he be pointing to there? 
I think that he's talking about the kind of love that is opposed, that is opposite of hate, the kind of love that only exists in relationship to hate, which is back in a duality. I love because I don't hate, or I hate because I don't love. So I think he's pointing to something that's even beyond that duality of love and hate, not even having a preference there of whether I'm feeling love or whether I'm feeling hate. What does that say for our practice? What does that say for our practice here? Not to have any, not to have any preferences about what's moving through the mind, the body, the senses. There's a book in the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is the uh, is the te- are the texts that hold the Buddhist teachings. And there's one book called the Majjhima Nikaya, which is the middle length sayings of the Buddha. And there's a passage in the Majjhima Nikaya where someone approached the Buddha and asked him to summarize his teachings in one phrase. And the, the Buddha replied that he could. And he told him this. This is the, the Pali is Sabe Dhamma Nalam Abhini Visaya. And what that translates as is nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. And the Buddha emphasized the point that whoever heard this core phrase had heard all of my teachings. Simple, huh? Whoever practiced this core phrase had practiced all of my teachings. Whoever received the fruits of practicing this core phrase has received all the fruits of my teachings. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. So maybe, maybe another translation of that first passage in the, of the Third Zen Patriarch might be the great way is for those who don't cling to their preferences. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's just a little way out. <laughs> we'll see as we, as we get more evolved on this path. But I think that makes it more possible for us because I think we are going to have preferences. You know, there are things we kind of like, things we don't like. But is that really the problem? Is the problem so much in the liking or the disliking? Or is it again in the, in the way that we hold on in the identification of what we make of these things, of the sensual world, of the mental world, of the physical world. So this phrase, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine, is really the heart of the Buddhist teachings. Buddhadasa, one of the very great uh, meditation teachers in Thailand who died in, n- not so long ago in the last 10 years said that realizing this truth is like taking a medicine that provides immunity from all diseases of the mind. This was one of the phrases that Buddhadasa really loved and, and his teaching, so much of Buddhadasa's teachings really stemmed from this uh, phrase, from this teaching. 
getting people to understand what gives rise to this sense of me, this sense of I, that really create, seems, can seem to create so many difficulties for us. So immunity from all the diseases in the mind. What are these diseases that are being referred to? In the Buddhist language, they can be defined by, in three categories. The, the disease of the mind of greed, the disease of the mind of aversion or hate, the disease of the mind of delusion or ignorance. Greed, that arising of greed in the mind that really comes, that we can say is a disease. So we're talking about these states of mind. We're not just talking about the preferences. We're talking about something that's much stronger that actually overwhelms consciousness to the point that we lose control of ourselves. We lose control and these forces of mind take over and we don't have any sense of being able to moderate our lives. So greed. Greed is like, it's like blind desire where we want to take possession of things for me, things that are going to be for me. It's a, a kind of pulling in energy, a gathering in energy, you know, where, where we have to grip and take hold and pull in so that I have something for me. And it's a way that we, we build up this sense of myself and I, but all these things around us, whether it's material possessions or experiences or people, situations, um, whether it's mind states and experiences or feelings that we have in our body or whatever it is, things I want and I'll desperately do whatever I can to have these things because my identity gets so caught up in the possessing of these things and I lose sight of what's true. So the forces of greed that move through the mind. The forces of hatred or aversion that move through the mind. And the aversion or the hatred, we know it as the rejecting or the pushing away, the not wanting. It's the opposite force of the greed, of the pulling in. It's the pushing out, pushing away. And in the same way, we kind of have to get some strength, some physical strength, and tighten and push out that which is unpleasant or we, we want to deny or ignore that we don't want to have any association with as me. And I don't want this in my identity. I don't want this in my world. And yet in doing that, we of course are reinforcing the sense of myself because it's so strong. We're making a statement, taking a stance. I don't want that. And we get involved in that manipulation and that controlling and that pushing and that pulling. So these forces of greed and hatred, they move through the mind, sometimes very strong, sometimes not so strong, and yet they do have a same kind of effect of, of, uh, of causing some inner pain or difficulty for us. And the third one is the force of delusion, which is also called ignorance or blindness. 
And delusion is, operates as a mind that doesn't know what it wants. It doesn't know. It's not that it, it wants something very strongly or it doesn't want. It actually doesn't know what it wants. It's unsure whether to attract or repel. And it spins around in circles, uncertain, afraid to push, unwilling to push, not really knowing what to do. And perhaps you can get a sense of each one of these forces moving through your own mind as you hear them. Because it seems that in the, um, in the mind that isn't fully awake or realized, these are the forces that move through. These are the states, the states that give us the feeling of I, the feeling of mine. These are the states that give rise to that, that give rise to the ego view, that, that sense of ourself. And the feeling and identification with the sense of I and mind are what give rise to the, and reinforce these three forces of mind. It's a cycle this way, and we get caught in this loop. If we have a strong sense of I, then there's going to be the movement of greed and aversion and delusion. That's how it all, that's what, what gives, that's what, what we often take to be ourselves. Usually, one of these forces is stronger in, in one person than an, another. So some people have stronger tendencies towards greed, towards the wanting, towards the attraction. Some people have stronger tendencies towards the hate or the anger, the aversion. And some people have stronger tendencies towards being somewhat deluded or uncertain or doubtful or not knowing. It seems that as human beings, and part of our, our personality, one of these characteristics usually takes form more strongly. But then again, you know, maybe you're one of the lucky ones, and you've got all three really strongly. You know, who knows? It's possible. So anything that is clung to as I or mine brings about dukkha. Dukkha, this wonderful word in our teachings, dukkha, which doesn't really have a very good translation it's usually translated as suffering. But sometimes, you know, for some people who have a fairly comfortable life, or fairly, um, e- not, not an easy life, but a lot of uh, e- ease in their life, they'll say, I'm not suffering. So therefore, these teachings don't really apply to me. So it's not really that it's suffering as much as it's about the dissatisfaction just that, that kind of angst or dissatisfaction that we often feel in our life, and we don't know why. It seems like everything's fine. You know, I'm not that troubled. There's not that much that's unsettled. But yet, I feel that in myself, just a, a, a dis-ease, an unease, which comes about because there isn't the clear seeing into the nature of things. There's still the tendency of these forces moving through the mind. So what do we get attached to? What do we get identified with and entangled with that gives rise to this dukkha? 
the Buddha talks about four primary attachments that we get caught in. And the, as you know, the Buddha is wonderful for having made all these very clear lists. You know, we have four of this and three of that and seven of that and eight of this and 32 of this. And it really helps make a fairly clear map for us, for those of us who like things very organized, which I do very much. It makes, makes things simple for me. So there's four kinds of basic attachments or primary attachments. The first one is attachment to sense pleasure. This is the run through the Buddhist teachings and the way that we have the Buddhist teachings these days. Just this attachment to sense pleasure. And this is the, the metaphor that's often used for this. It's like if you have a clear pond, a very clear pond, and somebody poured beautiful dyes, colored dyes, into the pond. One, if one gets entranced by the dye, the color, they'll lose the ability to see down to the depths of the pond, the depths and the clarity of the pond, and we get pulled away by the colors. And this is what often happens in our daily conditions is we get pulled through the senses, the sights and the taste and the touch and the smells and the, the body, the feelings. We want the pleasurable, sensual feelings that, that's possible in this body and this mind. And we can even become somewhat addicted to these pleasures. And of course, people who have addictions really suffer from this tendency, this force to really want these particular kind of pleasurable situations because it's very difficult to tolerate the opposite, which is the unpleasant. And in this world, in this conventional world in which we live, the experiences move on the continuum of from pleasant to unpleasant or intensely pleasant, very in, sometimes very intensely pleasant, all the way to intensely unpleasant. And because we uh, don't often want to feel the unpleasant, we can go after these sensual pleasures and try to find them wherever we can to try to kind of make these experiences happen kind of as closely as possible, you know, because they end, right? You know, a sense pleasure will only last for so long if I eat a piece of cake or I'm having a nice conversation or I go to a movie or um, sitting in the garden or my meditation. You know, they only last for so long. They don't last. They come to an end like all things. So usually what the mind does is, oh, oh, it's over. Where am I going to find the next one? You know, and the mind's already starting to strategize where the next really good feeling experience is going to be. And if we can get enough of those experiences lined up, then perhaps we'll feel happy and satisfied for a longer period of time. The only trouble is it doesn't work. We, try, we can spend a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to get all these experiences lined up, but it, it comes to the point where it all falls apart, it all comes to an end. And we know this, all we have to do is look around in the world, the people who seem to have it all, you know, and yet that isn't the truth of things. 
it's not really like that. So understanding sense desire and that in that pull, the, the pull towards the, 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 the pleasurable experiences. What's that experience? What's that like? Well, how, how can we identify that so we know that within our own, own mind and own be- being so that we can feel the pull as it starts to happen and have some understanding and wisdom that that thing that I'm being pulled after isn't necessarily going to be the thing that's going to make me ultimately happy. That's a misconception. It's not out there. And each time I move out, I'm moving away from the true source of my happiness, the true source of my fulfillment, which is right here within my own heart, within my own being. And so each time I pull out, move away, I'm disconnect. There's a potential for disconnection with that. I remember one time I had the opportunity to be with. Uh, Tupu Ukin Rinpoche, who's the father of Sokni Rinpoche, who was just here teaching at Guy House a couple weeks ago. A wonderful, great Dzogchen master. Uh, it was with him in Kathmandu in Nepal. And I had an opportunity to take teachings from him for about five days. And in one of the teachings, he was teaching about this movement of grasping, movement of clinging on to something that we think is going to bring us fulfillment. And Rinpoche's, perhaps if you've been with them, when they teach, they usually use all the different ornaments and things that are around to use examples and to make things more real. So on his platform where he was sitting in the small room was a beautiful uh, teacup China teacup that he takes his tea in. It was sitting there as it for, for his tea, and a really exquisite teacup. So he, he picks the teacup up and he puts it in his hand and holds it up and he says, you know, this is a, it's all translated with a translator there, but he says in Tibetan, translated in English, you know, to look at this teacup. And I'm looking at it, you know, and I'm just seeing, wow. You know, what a teacup. You know, it's really just the finest china and pan-painted designs on it. You know, just, just delicate and fragile and exquisite. And he's holding up and he said, Now, attachment is when the mind starts to move towards it and likes it, thinks it's beautiful. And I went, oh, <laughs> that." Because I could just see, I just, I was right there before he said anything. I thought, oh, there it goes. There's my mind just moving. Ah, that, boy, I wonder where he got that. I should have a teacup, you know, in my house that that's beautiful. Why don't I also, you know, treat myself to having a teacup as beautiful as that teacup and so delicate? And he said, whoa. He said, that movement of liking is the beginning of the clinging. It's the beginning of the, of the, attachment. The attachment is when it actually kind of, one grabs onto it and takes it, and you know, as if I would have, as if I would get up and rush over and say, yeah, I want that, can I have that? You know, a little more intensified, you know, that attachment. But just the movement of the liking. At the time, 
I noticed that I didn't believe him. My, my mind started to doubt the teaching. I thought, no, that's not, that can't be attachment or, or clinging or attachment. I said, oh, I was just liking it. You know, I just, I just had a preference for it. You know, and yet over the years, this is about 10 years ago, over the years, I couldn't stop thinking about that teaching. I mean, it just kept working on me and working on me so that whenever I would see something that I liked, I'd go, oh. <laughs> and I would just feel the energetic pull. I'd feel the energetic response each time. And I had to watch it. I had to look at it and not deny that perhaps that might be the beginning of that movement of falling out, thinking that that thing is going to do it for me. That thing is going to complete me in some way. That thing is going to enhance my good feeling about myself in some way. Rather than realizing that everything is perfectly, quietly at home in place already. I don't really need anything. So wonderful teaching. The Buddha said... What is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. What is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. And so sometimes we can think that when we really understand the teachings of letting go and non-clinging, that there's no more beauty But nothing changes. It just means that tendency to want to hold on is no longer causing suffering or difficulty. It drops away and one is resting quietly within oneself. So one form of attachment, attachment to sense pleasure. The second attachment is the attachment to views and opinions. And as we know, all we have to do again is look around the world and we see that this is the one, too, that causes so much suffering for us all. Attachment to views and opinions, all the conflicts, all the war and all the ramification from the, from the uh, opinions and views of those uh, who are in power and leadership. And it doesn't even have to be to that extent. We just look within our own lives, our own relationships, our views and opinions. The Buddha pointed out in one of his teachings, he said, one problem with having views and opinions is that there will always be somebody else who has another view and opinion. So you will have a conflict if you hold on to your view. And the Buddha stated that again and again in his communities during the time he was teaching. He says, what is the point of asserting your views? You're going to just run in to others and it's going to create disharmony and pain and conflict. So let go. Hold your views and opinions lightly. Not that you're not supposed to have them. Again, not to cling, not to hold on tightly. Let them arise lightly as they do. So getting a sense of what that means, what, what's the difference between the beautiful experiences arise or the views and opinions arising, but not holding on 
not holding on for dear life as if they they mean something that's going to make such a difference in this world. The third attachment is the attachment to rites and rituals, which is an interesting one, because what this means is, is that in the end, everything has to go. We can't even hold on to our practices. We can't even hold on to the meditation techniques. We can't even hold on to the teachings. And particularly during the time of the Buddha, there were a lot of different sects that had a lot of ritual in them. And he could see through that, he could see the emptiness of it, and say, even that has to go. One has to go deeper. One has to go below that. One has to see that the emptiness that's here right now, that we don't need to hold on to anything, as I or mine or that's going to give me anything, that I am complete. I am independent of all things. So so in our tradition, in the Vipassana tradition, we don't have so many rituals, you know. There are many more rituals in the Zen tradition, in the Tibetan tradition. We're kind of the the stripped down version of Buddhism, you know, the, the kind of the the bare bones of our, this is how the tradition has come over in the, in the West. And sometimes people find that even a little boring, you know, say, well, can't we have a little more ritual, you know, you know, some drums or some cymbals or maybe a little dancing or some chanting or something, you know, but for the most part, we've pretty much left our, left the rituals behind and stay pretty much with the sitting and the walking and the sitting and the walking and, see what can be revealed in, in, that, in that form. And the fourth attachment is the one that's most difficult of all. And this is the attachment to the idea of a self. The attachment to an idea of a self. And this idea, or we sometimes call it this view of a self, or ego view, self-view, that the self is so solid and, and substantial. It's such a conditioned view. Of course, it's something that we are um, told, to, uh, told about and influenced by from the time we are born. And it's deeply held within the psyche. And yet, when we come to meditation, we come to our practice, and we start looking inwardly, we can, we can have a sense, as we begin to look at this sense of self that we take to be so substantial and solid and, and individual and isolated from all things, that perhaps it isn't as fixed as I might have imagined or you might have imagined. And we, we feel into the breathing, say, well, is, am I the breath? And yet the breath comes and it goes. Sometimes it's the out-breath, sometimes it's the in-breath. Am I the in-breath or am I the out-breath or am I all of it? Or sometimes I'll have a thought about one thing. That thought goes and then I have a contradictory thought. Well, am I this thought or am I that thought? Am I, sometimes somebody says, oh, you're really beautiful. And then another person say, oh, you know, you're not very attractive at all. Which one am I? Who am I? 
or the feelings that move through, or the sensations that move through. And then we see it all moving through and changing and, and impermanent. And can't sometimes find any body who's substantial behind all these experiences that are coming and going. Maybe I'm the one who knows all of this. I'm the one who sees all of it. I'm the one who can recognize it. But is that who I am? Is that solid? Is that fixed? Is that substantial? So we start to question this view of myself and who I take myself to be and these identifications we have about ourselves and maybe start asking that question, who am I? I always like the example of, you know, when I clip my toenails, am I now on the floor? My toenails that are on the floor, is that me? Have I left some of myself behind? Or when I get my hair trimmed, uh-oh, I left some of myself at the, at the hairdresser. Maybe I should go collect the hair and bring it back with me. You know, who am I? One time when I was teaching here at Gaia House, there was a, a work retreatant who, um, for some reason, he, made, he was able to bake a cake. I think he wanted to bake a cake. And so the managers let him bake a cake, and he... Um, wanted to bake a cake for all the yogis. And, um, and so then it was beautiful, it was wonderful, and he, it was a treat for everybody. And then when I had an interview with him, he was just astounded by this insight that he had. And he said, you know, what I really saw was that I became the cake. I was the cake. He said, I started to feel like really concerned how everybody was going to feel about eating the cake. Like, the cake was me, you know? Were people going to like the cake? Were they not going to like the cake? Were they um, going to throw it out? Were they going to not like me because I made the cake or like me a lot because, I mean, it was all about me. It wasn't about the cake. And he could just see how he had become an extension, of, like, it, like his body had, you know, become the cake. Well, where was... Where did he end and his body begin, you know? The cake, the cake end and his body begin. And it was like when they ate the cake, they were eating him. It was, what are they going to think? You know? And it was, it was, he was absolutely fascinated by that insight. And he said, you know, what, do I, what else do I do that with? You know, it's like, you know, my car, my car. If my car it's like when my car gets a dent, I get hurt. Oh no, my car. And look at how that sense of myself extends to all these things around me, whether the things or the people. Or, and it was such a fascinating insight for him. That it was such a, a strange way of experiencing himself. And he, it really helped him to break that. He said, well, I can see how silly that is. I'm not the cake. <laughs> the cake is not me. <laughs> so we can have some insights into this, how we extend ourselves out and start to take ownership of the things and say, it's me, it's mine, it's I. Where it actually is just, a, it's a distorted view of how we build ourselves up who we think we are. And as we look more deeply into this, this starts to fall apart. 
start to disentangle. We say, who am I? I was doing a retreat with Sok, the Sokni Rinpoche, the son of Tuku Ugin, about uh, three weeks ago in California. And I found his teachings extremely inspiring. And one of the things, one, 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 one thing that Sokni said was, we've lost the beauty of magic. He said, if we understand things aren't really the way they appear, there is a lightness in the mind. We've lost the beauty of magic. What does this teaching mean? I found this very inspiring, this teaching. He went on to talk about an example of a flower, taking a flower, and he held up a flower, and he said, if we can appreciate a flower for what it is, that's fine. Other, otherwise, we might want too much from it. Because usually what we're saying is, I want the flower to provide me with some kind of pleasurable experience. Pleasurable experience. And then in a way, we're not really able to appreciate the flower just for what it is in its own nature. But it becomes something that has to give me an experience. Give me an experience of feeling better in myself. Because what happens is then the flower dies. It changes and it dies. And then what happens to my relationship to that flower? I don't like it anymore. It's not giving me what I want. I discard it. I reject it. And yet it's only the ego mind, it's only this conceptual mind or the mind of self that assigns these levels of satisfaction and dissatisfaction onto something. Or that it's going to give me a good feeling or it's going to make me disappointed. It's only the ego mind. It's only my mind that's doing that. Because everything has its own nature. Everything comes into birth. Everything stays for a period of time, sometimes very quickly, just an instant, like a thought, sometimes a little bit longer, and then it dies away. This is the relative truth of this world in which we live. And at this level of this conventional relative world, can we appreciate all phases of this nature? Or do we have to demand that the objects only can be one way because when they're like that, then I feel satisfied, and when they're not like that, I don't want it. I want to reject it. Can I enjoy the flower even when it's dying? Can I enjoy the flower even when it starts to wilt and the petals start to fall off? Because if I can, then there's a relationship, a true relationship. Then there is a dynamic connection with the nature of that thing. I'm not imposing my likes and my dislikes and my preferences and my demands and saying it has to be this way and not that way. I am 
in relationship with nature itself. It's only ego that says, but I like the bloom, you know, so bloom. <laughs> you have to be like that, or I don't, want to, I don't want these flowers in my house, which, you know, we do. We always take the dead flowers and throw them away. I mean, but, just, but, but sometimes have you just watched something start to disintegrate and been able to come into this very alive relationship with that changing thing, whatever it is, and just stay very present to appreciate that nature in all of its phases, in all of its changes. Can we do this? You know, I think we can do it with things like nature or with flowers or with things that maybe we can have that more simple relationship with. But what about people, our relationships? What about our bodies? These bodies that are aging and changing, getting sick. I don't like you when you're like this. I only want you when you're well, when you're strong, when you're beautiful, when you're energetic, when you're responding the way I like you to respond. All these demands that we place upon the nature of things. And in that respect, I was so touched by Catherine's story last night of being with her father, her father's body when he died, because there was an expression of deep appreciation and deep connection right in that that phase of nature. No loss, no rejection, no denial, but presence. In a way, that's what we are being called forth for. Can we be there in that way? Because otherwise it's ego that says, it's not bringing me what I want. I'm not getting what I want from this experience. And it's actually very difficult to have spiritual perception of things when everything is so governed by our ego's preferences. If we're so fixed in our ideas about what we like and what we don't like and we're operating out of those ideas, how can we, how can we truly awaken to the subtleties of the mystery, of the magic, the beauty of the magic that's here, right here, right now, right here as we sit here together? So if we've got these fixed ideas or views or opinions, wants wants and dislikes and likes and rejections and this we'll miss the subtle perception we'll miss the subtle sense of things so he says we expect too much from things we expect too much from objects 
We expect things and people to provide these good feelings for us. Expect experiences to provide these, these feelings that we want. And yet it's only our mind. It's only our mind making these demands. Our, our, our influences from our past conditions that are manifesting in the present and we're taking it to be real and truthful. So if it's only our mind, then perhaps we have to do something about our mind. And that's why this is called mind training. Sometimes this discipline we're doing is called mind training so that we can train the mind in such a way that it's possible to see things clearly. To see clearly. And to see clearly is to see nature. And to see nature means to see it in all of its phases, all of its changes, without the pull, pushes and the pulls and the the demands of our ego. And so we practice the letting go. We practice the letting go. We practice the breathing in and breathing out and letting go, not holding on. Not holding on to the demands. Perhaps seeing more clearly what's moving in our own mind, in our body, in our feelings, in our emotional life. How do these demands arise? How do these how does this need for controlling and manipulating my reality, how does it arise? What insight can I have into this so that there's a possibility to bring about some change and transformation so that I can live life with more ease? I can live life with more freedom. I can live life more grounded in the truth of things. When the Buddha talks about the one who is realized or the one who is noble, he he says, he, but I'm going to change it, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. He or she abides independent. That means independent. One is not dependent on anything for their fulfillment, their happiness. But one knows where happiness abides. One knows where peace abides. 